You know, you've heard two different readings about the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem from Luke's Gospel and also from Matthew's Gospel. And uh, in those readings, there are elements of that that we have come to recognize as uh, sort of our traditional celebrations, remembering the palms on Palm Sunday, uh, remembering that Jesus rode into Jerusalem uh, on the colt of a donkey, a young donkey. In fact, the scripture uh, in, in Luke's gospel tells us five times that this was a, a colt that had never been ridden before that the disciples would find tied and waiting for the master. It's kind of interesting to contemplate the fact that perhaps uh, as many uh, think he prophetically proclaimed that they would find that colt at a certain place and as they were untying it, he says, if the owner says to you, why are you doing this? Simply say, the Lord needs it and uh, he will let you come with it. And so uh, we could talk about all of those things this morning. We could talk about the amazement uh, of uh, Jesus sitting up on a, a a colt that had never been broken to ride, and yet having perfect acquiescence, perfect quiet on the back of this animal that had never known uh, the burden of a human being. Uh, We could talk about the recollection uh, from Zechariah, as the Scriptures point out in Matthew, a direct quotation, Behold your king coming, riding on the colt of a donkey. And it was uh, not only a kind of a known uh, tradition, but it was an expectation messianically for the Jewish population to anticipate their king riding in as a victor. It was not that you rode into Jerusalem to conquer the city, but that as a conqueror, one who had won the victory, you were ushered into Jerusalem on a colt and you were brought and hailed as the king and as the master who had subdued the peoples. Jesus uh, uh, clearly was recognized in this event as the king uh, who had won the victory, and they were celebrating that. The journey that he had made was quite some distance, but the distance that he rode the donkey was only a little less than a mile as he came down through the Kidron Valley and then entered into Jerusalem. But the thing that I really want to focus on this morning as we think about uh, the story that we remember as Palm Sunday, we think about the event of Jesus uh, coming into Jerusalem, is I want to look at the, the distinction between the crowd and Jesus in their goals. It's a distinction that can only be described in many respects as a contrast or as a dichotomy. They are coming from different directions, even though they're moving together, as it were. And as Jesus moves toward Jerusalem, there is a sense of expectation in one respect from the crowds that he is never going to fulfill. And so, as a consequence, as we move toward the end of this week, uh, this is what we call Passion Week or Holy Week, 
because, as we remember the last week of Jesus' life, the triumphal entry turns bitterly sour toward the end of the week as the Jewish leadership conspire, uh, along with the, the Roman contingent, to have him crucified uh, on Friday as we move toward that time. And in this week, Jesus will give some of his most important teachings in the temple. And as he clearly defines his purpose and his character, more and more people will fall away from being enamored with him to turning against him, uh, leading to that groundswell of opposition where the crowd finally and ultimately cried out, Do you want Jesus or Barabbas? Give us. Barabbas, and crucify Jesus. So as we think about that, I want to ask you a question this morning to think with me. What was Jesus' goal? What was his motive, his intent on going to Jerusalem? And what was the intent or what were the goals of the crowds and the multitudes and even many of his disciples. Luke tells us that there were a company of undoubtedly hundreds of disciples, maybe thousands. Uh, They're not just the twelve. There are many more. The twelve have spent a lot of time with him. They still don't fully get it. But they are much better versed than many of the other followers who have been less closely associated with his daily ministry. They're among those waving the palm branches and throwing their cloaks on the ground and and, uh, ushering him in as king. And then moving a little bit further removed, there are the people in Jerusalem who haven't made up their minds at all. They're indecisive. Some of them are already hostile. And so as Jesus takes this journey, he has goals, but what were their goals? What were their expectations? What were they looking for? I find as I consider the the differences between Jesus and the crowds, the differences that uh, stand out between, may I say, real men and the, uh, the artificial, the, the hypocritical, the facade. Jesus has a mission that he is unwavering in, no matter the cost. He understands the stakes, and yet he's moving resolutely Uh, toward Jerusalem. The multitude, on the other hand, represent the vast majority of humanity who are characterized by uh, moving here and there uh, by their emotions, governed by their whims, fickle in their loyalties and allegiance. They're with you today, but as soon as the tide turns and it's not favorable to them, they go in a different direction. They are not dependable and cannot be trusted. Um, so much of that, I think, describes our current culture where uh, that, that old uh, tradition of a man's word is his bond has long gone by the wayside and today it's uh, whatever we can get away with 
as kind of like the rule of the day. And this is the characteristics of the crowd. So what were they looking for? What were they anticipating? I want to take you back uh, on some snapshots of Jesus' ministry and remind you of some things. Remember when he fed the 5,000 and uh, they had followed him out into the countryside to be taught. And as they listened to the message, uh, it got to be dark and Jesus um, told his disciples, I want you to take care of their needs. I want you to feed them. And they were perplexed. And you know the story how uh, they found uh, a lad with uh, five uh, loaves and two fish, and Jesus took those and fed 5,000 people. Well, it was only the next day when they found him again, and uh, they wanted more of this free food. They kind of liked that idea. It satisfied uh, their desires without costing them anything. They thought it would be really cool to be a follower of Jesus. We can get free meals. Um, he healed those who were sick. He had even on occasion raised some from the dead. He had performed incredible miracles. He had delivered people from demonic oppression. He was particularly interested in those who were downtrodden, the undercut of society, the, the less fortunate. Um, Luke portrays him particularly in this light as one who is very much interested in the poor and very much interested in those who are ostracized by society. And so in this multitude is this whole mixture of people that in one way or another may have benefited from Jesus' previous ministry. And really they're hoping for more. There are also those who have chafed and suffered under Roman occupation. And they are tired of having to comply with Roman regulations and pay the Roman taxes and give acquiescence uh, and uh, submission to the Roman rulership, which is pagan and ungodly in every sense of the word. And they are ready to be delivered from that. They are looking forward to the Messiah, the promised one who will come and free them from all of this political oppression that they have experienced. And they're hoping that Jesus will be this person that will give them political freedom. They're hoping that He will lead them in triumph and victory and give them overthrow Rome in the, in the region and restore Palestine and, and the land of Israel to its rightful ownership. And they have those expectations. There are all kinds of mixed motivations in the crowd of things that they're wanting from Jesus. But they all boil down basically to a desire that Jesus will do what I want, that He will satisfy my longings, that He will meet my temporal expectations and needs, that, that He will give me the things that will make me happy. That's clearly their motivation. Jesus, on the other hand, has a different mission. He sees beyond the surface. And friends, the, the problems that we struggle with on a daily basis are indeed merely the surface. We wrestle with disease and with pain and with suffering and with death 
Because sin has come into this world. We wrestle with conflicting governments and opposition and restraint that is perhaps unwarranted because of jealousy and greed that has come into this world through sin. We, we struggle with issues in our own hearts, unable to be free from our own failures, uh, smitten by our own uh, weaknesses, and constantly finding that we are dragged down by our own habits. And the harvest that those habits often bring are bitter harvest that leave us in agony and suffering. And Jesus sees beyond all of that. And His goal is much deeper and much richer. He wants to get at the root of the problem, not merely superficially bring a healing, but get to the bottom and go to the deepest part of the issue. If you recall, when we were studying Luke chapter 9 together, I think it's along about verse 13, that in our studies, Luke makes a major transitional statement, and he takes us on a journey that occupies the next 10 or 12 chapters. And it begins with the statement that Jesus resolutely set his face to go to Jerusalem. There was a decisive moment in Jesus' ministry that actually occurred about uh, 8 to 12 months prior to this Palm Sunday day, where Jesus made a conscious decision that He had turned toward Jerusalem and nothing would deter Him. That intent is... Echoed again in Luke chapter 13, verses 31 to 35, and again in Luke chapter 19, verses 31 to 34, where Jesus reiterated His commitment to go to Jerusalem. He had set His face to go to Jerusalem. To me, there's a great contrast between the crowd that will move whichever way the wind blows, And Jesus, who long before had made a decision and refused to be deterred, that he was going to go to Jerusalem, and he knew full well that what awaited him was a cross. It wasn't going to be an enthronement in victory. So many of the movies and the popular notions are that that uh, Jesus was riding the crest of popularity and things went horribly wrong and, and turned on him. And, and from an outsider's viewpoint, one can see how that might be deduced. But the reality is, is that Jesus never expected to be enthroned. He never expected to win the popular vote. He had made a decision that was going to take him to a cross. And a cross that was going to be costly and painful 
on which to die. Not only the agony of physical crucifixion, but even more so something into which we cannot begin to fathom or enter into in our mind is that he would be separated from his father as the sin bearer of the world. And he knew that there would be that time on the cross when that which had never happened in all of eternity past, in those agonizing hours would become true as the Father turned away from the sight of His own Son bearing the sin of the world. And Jesus would die alone on that cross. He knew what was in front of Him. He knew what to expect. And He was moving toward it with a determination that would not be sidetracked. I wonder how many of us have that kind of deep resolve no matter what the cost. I wonder how many of us have that kind of loyalty and that commitment to the cause, as it were. That Jesus would move toward an agonizing death intentionally. And one then must ask the question, why would he do that? What was his motive? We know what the crowds wanted, but what did Jesus want? Earlier in Luke chapter 19, there is the narrative event of Jesus going to the home of uh, Zacchaeus. And as we come to the end of that uh event of having dinner with Zacchaeus and the criticism and opinions that were being shared back and forth over that moment, Jesus made a statement, for the Son of Man has come for this purpose, to seek and to save that which was lost. That statement, in essence, defines his mission. Jesus' intent was to seek and to save what was lost. We might, at first glance, say that was people. Lost people. And there's no question that that's true. Jesus' ultimate goal was to save people. People who were lost. But what does it mean to be lost? Is there more to it than just being rescued that we might go to heaven? So often when you hear the message, um, the lost need to be saved, we use that Christian terminology, which comes out of the Scripture, by the way, very clearly from this passage, that... People need to stop going to hell and be going to heaven, and Jesus is the one that makes that turnabout possible. Okay, but what does that mean? What does it mean to be lost? What is lost? Is it just us going to hell that we're lost for eternity? Or is that the consequence of something even deeper again. 
What has been lost? One thing that's been lost is fellowship with God. The scripture says that all we like sheep have turned astray. Every one of us has gone our own way. Our fellowship with God has been broken. We no longer have a loving, harmonious relationship with our Maker. We are at odds with Him. We are at odds within ourselves because we are in rebellion. And He is at odds with us because our lives are now blighted with sin and its consequences. And as a consequence of that, there is a wall, there's a gulf, there's a barrier that separates us from God. But also, to be lost means that all of the things that God had designed for our enjoyment have been forfeited, along with Creation, there was provision, there was health, there was love that was not complicated. There were pure relationships. There was a beautiful kind of uh, harmony to life that was deeply satisfying in every respect. There were, were no regrets. There were no bad choices. There was no unexplained illness. There was no no funerals. There was nothing to bring sadness and brokenness into our lives. And all of that changed. An evil villain came on the scene and wooed us away. The scripture calls him that serpent of old, and in the book of Revelation, he is referred to as the dragon. I want you to use your imagination this morning a little bit and envision with me the bride of Christ caught in the snares of the serpent and the clutches of the dragon. I want you to see humanity with his claws piercing into us, holding us in chains of bondage. He came along and offered us everything we could ever want without God. You don't have anyone to think about or answer to. You can, you can do whatever you want to do. You can have it all. You can, I'll give you the riches of the world. You can have everything. You can have all the knowledge. You can have everything you need. You don't need God. You can be independent. And then as soon as we bought that lie, we became enslaved and ensnared. And found ourselves, rather than free, in deep bondage. Suddenly, death enters the world. Suddenly, sin runs rampant. Relationships are broken. Murder occurs. One of the first gross 
uh, evil manifestations of the sin nature as brother murders brother. Jealousy and greed begin to fill the picture. And disloyalty and distrust begin to manifest. And sickness begins to take over the bodies. And pretty soon, this beautiful bride, this humanity that God has made to to walk in harmonious, loving relationship with Him, is now living in a dark dungeon of misery and of pain and shame and filth because we believed a lie and came into the clutches of a dragon. And I see Jesus coming into Jerusalem as the mighty conqueror, as the Savior, as the lover of my soul, who the writer of Hebrews says, for the joy set before Him, the joy set before Him, endured the cross, despised the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of God where He lives to make intercession for us and one day come uh, as the bridegroom to take us to Himself and to be forever in the Father's house. Can you see Him as the Prince coming to rescue His bride? Can you see Him as the lover of our soul coming to snatch us away from the clutches of the dragon? Coming to get not to the superficial pain that we suffer, but coming to get to the root of it. To set us truly free. To deliver us from bondage. To free us from all the ultimate consequences of sin and to bring us home into relationship with Himself and with the Father and to restore us as the lovely, spotless, pure, holy Bride of Christ. Jesus had a great mission. And it was, it was a, a compulsion that drove him, that nothing would deter him because of the joy set before him. Us. Us. We are the ones. He resolutely set his face to Jerusalem and intently moved to the cross. Because it was there that the dragon would be defeated. It was there that the serpent of old would be crushed on his head. It was there that Jesus would ultimately pay the price for our sin and cleanse us and and clear us from all responsibility and guilt of that sin and free us to be in relationship with God. And then resurrection would triumph over death and make us alive forevermore. 
And for that purpose, He determined that nothing would deter Him from the path He was on. It's easy to see the difference, isn't it? Between the motivation of Jesus and the desires of the crowd. We're very quick to criticize them, and we're very quick to honor Jesus. But the real question for us this morning is, what do we want from Jesus? If we were in the crowd, what would be our goal? Would we see him riding toward a cross? To redeem us in the depths of our depravity and restore us to fellowship with God? Or are we after a Jesus that will simply make us feel good? Solve our problems, fix our woes, pat us on the back, give us some kind of affirmation while all the time leaving us in the misery of our sin and losing us for eternity. What would we want from Jesus? Can we see the difference? That crowd is not unlike any crowd today. Its desires are not unlike the desires of any people anywhere on the planet. Very few people get it. But Jesus would not heal our hurts superficially. He was determined to go the root of the problem and eradicate it at the very source. What do you want from Jesus today? Do you want to be Healed lightly or healed deeply? Do you want to know that no matter what life brings your way, there is victory in the end and life everlasting in His presence? Do you want to know that no matter what you face, He will never leave your side? He is the lover of your soul. And He will never leave you alone. Do you want to know that He will give you wisdom and grace and strength and liberty from your own habits and bondage? Do you want to know that this Savior is the one who died to set us free? Free from ourselves as well as the consequences and bondage of sin. What do you want from Jesus this morning? Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. And I pray for all of us here today that we would think about the contrast between the multitudes and Jesus. that we would search our own hearts with the help of your Holy Spirit 
to see if there is any wicked way in us, any ulterior desires, any superficial and shallow motives, that you would help us to see him riding that colt as truly the King of kings and Lord of lords, that we would hail him and honor him as the king of our lives, the great prince who has redeemed us from the snare of the dragon, the lover of our souls, who longs for us to be in fellowship with him and to share eternity at his side, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and is set down now at the right hand of God. Lord, search our hearts that we might hail you and honor you for the right reasons. In Jesus' name, amen.